Welcome to Recovery Plus Podcast. Fuck yesterday, focus on today. I'm your host, Dr. Mainly Hannon. Here, we celebrate and honor people in recovery one conversation at a time. Let's talk. This is episode one. I'm so excited since today we are starting a two-part series, What is Rock Bottom? I'll be talking to two incredible people who will share their own personal experiences and views regarding rock bottom. Since the pandemic, more people have lost their lives to some form of substance use more than any other time in history. And I think this topic is relevant with today's world health crisis. However, on a positive note, to start this series about what is rock bottom, I'm so excited and honored to have this guest kick off our very first episode. He's a licensed clinical psychologist, a visionary, and founder of a drug treatment facility in Northern California. He's worked as a senior VP at a large nonprofit organization overseeing adult programs, housing programs, serving the homeless, adults suffering from co-occurring disorders and intellectual disabilities in Northern California. He's also worked in the hospital system. He has mentored several clinicians and professionals in the field of addiction and mental health. He's my dear friend for over a decade. Please welcome Dr. Wayne Thurston. Thank you so much for being here as my first guest. How are you? I feel so honored. I'm well, thank you. Well, I and do. it's great that you got this, this going. Thank you. I'm excited, and I'm really excited that you are here to launch this podcast. Um, so we'll just talk a, a little bit about what you know your experience has been with this topic. Um, as mentioned earlier, we are now two years into the pandemic. What impacts have you seen on people suffering from addiction? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think the same similar impact as to what you see in the general population. So there's been an incredible amount of increased isolation. And as a result of of that, I think we're seeing more people die um, because they're not getting out. And I think that's kind of happening at the same time that fentanyl has become such a popular drug. And so many of the other drugs are being laced now with fentanyl that, you know, people are dying in incredible numbers. I think for those people who have a substance use disorder related to alcohol, that you know, having home delivery has not necessarily been totally helpful. And you combine that with isolation, you've got more and more people who are sitting alone drinking where at least someone might have noticed what was happening with them. But now, you know, they may go for days without having contact with other people. I think as things are opening up, that's helpful. Then I think on the treatment side, there's been a huge impact because I know um, from running a rehab, that you know, there had to be so many structural changes in terms of how treatment was being done. Um, so everything from having to face isolation once you go into a treatment center to make sure you weren't going to spread the disease to other people, um, to having you know your psychotherapy or your drug and alcohol counseling being done uh, similar to the way we're doing it right now via screen, and you know, so that a lot of the you know, interpersonal closeness that we rely on in rehab to help people begin the healing process really also got impacted as well. Um, so, you know, things like, you know, doing support groups and psychoeducational groups, you know, having to be done outside regardless of what the weather was like, trying to keep social distancing, um, you know, right down to kitchen services and how people have their meals, you know, and having that plexiglass in between everything. Um, you know, was not helpful to it, but, um, 
so I think that in a lot of ways, um, you know, it's, it's a little more um, highlighted in terms of people with substance use disorders and treatment than it was in the general population, but it was the same types of issues that were kind of coming up. Right. And really severe. I mean, you've had to like change everything um, from a treatment right. standpoint. Um, mm -hmm. With that, what are your thoughts about rock bottom, that concept and the relationship with COVID? Well, you know, rock bottom is kind of, um, it's not a clinical term. So, but it comes from a long tradition, primarily out of the 12-step programs, which was really the only treatment that was available back in older days. Um, and so that, you know, the idea is you tie that concept of rock bottom with that of motivation, which was basically people had to pretty much lose everything in order to then be motivated to deal with their substance use disorder. So, you know, historically, when you think about, uh, you know, the chronic alcoholic who's lost their relationships, lost their job, lost all their finances, lost their families, then maybe they might have the motivation to actually consider the fact that they need to stop drinking. So that's kind of one of the, the traditions that has been carried forward. And it's not necessarily a bad tradition, mm -hmm. but it's really not the whole story. Um, and it comes from a time, I think, when there was very little known about treatment mm -hmm. and about what substance use disorders really are about. Um, and so the science wasn't there. And certainly these concepts that have kind of stayed with us over the years have been incredibly helpful to a lot of people, but not for everyone. And so now as things are getting slightly more sophisticated, although we still don't understand a lot, um, right. you know, it's not really an adequate way of describing motivation. So, um, you know, one of the things that came out years ago when I was a much younger clinician was this whole concept of stages of change and motivational interviewing, um, which really began that whole transition, at least as a psychologist, about how I thought about things. It used to be that if somebody couldn't get sober, or if somebody was working a 12-step program and relapsed, it was either that they weren't working the program adequately, or they hadn't reached rock bottom. Well, that's, and that's kind of what the clinicians were left with in terms of working you know, with people and trying to save them. Well, the idea was that the motivation had to be internally driven. Something external to the person had to be significant enough to actually motivate the person to want to change. Um, unfortunately, then, as is now, for a lot of people, they never reach that level and they die. And a dead addict never recovers. So right. when the stages of change model came out and motivational interviewing came out, it really changed it for me as a clinician because now motivation was my responsibility in terms of how do I, this person who has no motivation, how do I help them get it? Right. You know, that may for some people mean they would have to still lose everything before they would finally be willing to listen, but that wasn't the whole story. And so there were a lot of people that needed to be helped because frankly, to not have help them reach that motivation before they lose everything meant they were going to die. So for me, that really changed the techniques that kind of came out, you know, it became one of the first, you know, true evidence-based um, counseling 
uh, modalities that really people had, and it was a, a totally different kind of approach. Right. So, um, so now my thoughts about rock bottom are totally different than they were, say, 30 years ago, um, because now we have tools, you know, and from motivational interviewing um, CBT and, and DBT and all of those other skills that people can actually start to um, not only get motivated, but to feel hope that there were things that they could do, you know, and learn how to do um, to address some of the issues that's going on. Um, so these days, I mean, I still hear the term rock bottom all the time and bottoming out and all of that other stuff. And again, for some people, it's great and it's very helpful and um, all of that. But as a clinician now, it's like that's not necessary in order for somebody to not only get clean and sober, but also recover. And again, we have to separate those two things because, you know, Sobriety is not the same thing as recovery, you know, and like so many things in this field, we don't have good long-term massive studies. You know, we don't know how many people have a substance use disorder that simply take care of it themselves. You know, we don't have that data. We don't know what the actual success rate is of the 12-step program, but we also don't know exactly what the success rate or even how to define success for people who are going through alternative ways of trying to find recovery. So right. a lot of gray area, and unfortunately, we don't really have a lot of hard data. So at this point for me, you know, bottoming out is the point at which you're willing to listen. You know, mm -hmm. um, it's not necessary that you lose everything. It's not necessary that you've been in the psych unit five times. It's not necessary that you're a relationships have ended or that you've lost your children or that your family has walked away or that you've lost your career. You know, it's the bottom is the point at which you're willing to start to listen and start to actually do something. Um, and so I think that's probably a more current view from my perspective about bottoming out. But historically, bottoming out meant, you know, you pretty much lost everything and now you're willing and at that point, it was all about spiritual awakening. And it still is for a lot of people. <clears throat> but we also know now that there's a whole lot of biological, psychological, sociological issues that can be addressed as well. Absolutely. Um, so that kind of leads us into, you know, your own personal experience mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. understanding addiction or experiencing something similar. Tell me a little bit about that. Sure. So, I mean, I'm, a, I'm also a meth addict, um, and I haven't used meth for, I don't know, 35 years. Um, but I became addicted to meth during my 20s, and <clears throat> I was, um, I never experienced it bottoming out in the way that it was described back then. Mm -hmm. um, so I used meth for a long time, you know, uh, just snorting it and basically not really having any negative consequences. I would get up in the morning, I would have my cup of coffee and I would take a suit of meth, you know, during that coffee break good. around 10 o'clock, I would do the same thing, you know? And so I was able to work full time. I was able to go to school um, and didn't really suffer any kind of negative consequences. But like with all addiction, it works until it doesn't. <clears throat> and so 
at one point, um, I went to the needle and the needle changed everything. Um, and at that time, as a gay man living in the middle of a ghetto in Castro Street, mm -hmm. this was also the time that HIV was going through. Um, you know, the concept of dying was not something that I worried about uh, because kind of everybody was dying around me. So I was going to die of something anyway, as far as I was concerned. So as long as I was high when it hit, that was all I <laughs> So, <laughs> you know, and so that, um, you know, I was able to do that relatively successfully for a bit, although certainly when I switched over to using intravenously, that really changed a lot. Um, but the thing that changed the most was that I started to become psychotic. So I would use, I would go into a paranoid psychosis, um, and then I would have like 12 hours of misery. And then I would use again, <laughs> and then have 12 more hours of misery. And so it stopped being fun. Um, and I was able to see that this just simply wasn't worth it at that particular point in time. But again, I still had my job. I still had most of my significant relationships. Um, and the concept of dying or losing those things, I had accepted that. So that wasn't something that scared me or motivated me. Um, but what did motivate me was I was not willing to lose my mind. Is that if I was going to die, that's fine. You know, <laughs> I accept that. Everybody else is dying. Why should I not? Um, but I'm not willing to live and be psychotic. And so that kind of moved me or motivated me to actually then seek treatment at the time. Um, so for me, even back then, the whole concept of bottoming out, um, and at that time I was in a 12-step program and um, all of that as far as treatment goes, um, I understood the concept, but I always did view it slightly different for me than um, from what I had heard from you know, certain other people that were much more traditional. And then it also started for me to start to think of there's more than one way of the way this all goes down. And mm -hmm. so that kind of changed my thinking about addiction in general. Um, and again, this was before I went back to grad school and all of that sort of stuff. So I didn't really know very much at the time. I just knew that what I was hearing was true for a lot of people, but wasn't true for everyone. And so, mm -hmm. Go ahead. yeah, so that's what kind of started, I think, down this whole role. So several years later, when I did go back to grad school, you know, I didn't necessarily, um, I wanted to think more broadly about what people needed. Um, so that kind of started that whole transition. So tell me a little bit more about kind of the severity you went on with meth. So it was snorted and then um, to IV use. Is it just uh, because you wanted the high more? And Well, a lot of it was that my um, social group changed. Okay. And I started to meet more people who were using IV. Mm -hmm. And at that time, meth was primarily in the gay male community. Um, I didn't know any straight people using meth. Um, all of my drug dealers, all of my social things, they were all part of a community time. Um, and so, you know, in terms of being around them, mm -hmm. knowing that they were using IV and seeing them use it, 
took away the fear. And then it was kind of like one of those things like, oh, let's try that. Um, Normalizing. I did. And then it was like, bang. Um, and then it was like a whole different experience. Okay. And so did other folks around you experience something similar and wanted to access the 12 steps or some support? Or did you kind of do this? How did you arrive to do that when everybody around you was parting like rock stars? Well, I actually worked in the medical field. And I actually went to the doctors that I worked with, who all knew that I used, but they didn't know to the severity. And I said, look, this is what's happening. And so they actually sent me to various people that they knew for treatment. And I remember one particular instance where they sent me to a psychiatrist okay. who I knew and the psychiatrist wanted me to promise that I would never use as long as I was working. With him. And I said, I can't do that. <laughs> and so no. that was the end of that discussion. Sure. Um, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to lie to you. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I always felt like I kept my integrity no matter how bad things got. It's like, if you ask me, I'm going to tell you. Sure. Um, and then it was finally that there was um, uh, an LGBT focused um, outpatient recovery center just down the street from where I lived. And so I went in there and um, then went into an intensive outpatient program, with them. Um, you know, which was, you know, a lot of peer support primarily um, and a lot of encouragement, step programming, all of that sort of stuff. But, you know, I went through multiple relapses and stuff, but it gave me enough of what I needed to be able to just say enough. And how did that look to you? Is like, was it one day you're like all of a sudden or accumulated ideas of like, you know, the more skills I gain or insight on myself I have, I feel more confident that this is not the life I choose or how did that arrive to you? I mean, I think it was really that thing wasn't, things were getting worse and worse on the other side. <clears throat> so that, I mean, literally I couldn't even enjoy using anymore. <clears throat> so I would go using, thinking I was going to get high, and all I did was get paranoid after the initial rush, um, and that just got worse and worse. And then um, it did start to become more evident about what was happening. You know, so while I didn't lose everything, I also knew I was on purge if I didn't do something. Um, but it was really the psychosis and that feeling of you know, I would sit in the, you know, I lived in the middle of the Castro and. We had like bay windows and I would literally sit in a chair in front of the bay window all night long, convinced that people were looking at me from all of the other windows that I could see out my window. Oh. Every car on the street had somebody looking up at me. And if, you know, it, um, if I was trying to cover it from my partner, I would lay in bed and all I do is look at my heart count for eight hours. And like, this is not fun. So, um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so it was, it was more cumulative, and, you know, it, as happens with a lot of people, even after I got clean, I ended up relapsing a couple times, but they were relatively brief, and, you know, the one thing about meth-induced psychosis, it appears to just get stronger and stronger, mm -hmm. and requires less and less of a motivation to come back, so even if I had been clean for a couple of weeks, and then I used, it was, you know, instantly back and worse, um, so I wasn't totally stupid, so I knew we were where I was heading. Mm -hmm. And certainly I had met tweakers on the street who were just totally um, gone in terms of intellectually or emotionally. And I knew that's where I was heading if I didn't. So. 
I mean, this is extraordinary because we talked a little bit about, you know, the impacts of COVID and isolation and all of this kind of stuff. And you had the, you know, the, the HIV um, epidemic at that period, mm -hmm. right? Um, a lot of this sounds like self-determined, like you were, and you're pretty much like this. You're like balls to the wall. This is what I'm going to do. Fuck it. And you're just mm -hmm. doing, mm -hmm. that's the kind of thing mm -hmm. person you are. And I'm wondering, did you lean on anyone for support or stay connected? I mean, you went to these groups and everything like that, but was there somebody beside mm -hmm. you? Like you can do this or mm -hmm. how did that work for you? Yeah. I mean, my partner was with me, um, but he didn't really know. Um, he had come from the same social group, but had never really, um, he certainly used drugs, but never um, with any kind of addictive uh, type of process. But, you know, one of the things about, at least for me, was <clears throat> I only let people know what I want them to know. Sure. And so I will cover pretty much anything as long as I possibly can. And it was only when I did, was getting to that point where I wasn't going to be able to cover that I actually started to do it. But my personality is definitely an all or nothing type of thing. Yes, so, it is. <laughs> you know, there, can, there can be no moderation here. <laughs> just so, so you know um, that I am looking at Wayne right now, and he lost, uh, just a sidebar, I just want to acknowledge you look great. Uh, um, but you lost a lot of weight, right? Uh, yeah. And how did you do that? Just really quick. You just stopped I just it. decided it was time, and then I just, you know, I went down to one meal a day. And started <laughs> so you can see there's some parallels here with kind of the yeah, kind of. the determination, but that's what I think it is, is, you know, you can't do this in isolation. Um, it, it sounds like support is really helpful, and, you, mm. you know, you were able to access all these different kind of services, but you had that wherewithal, you know, mm -hmm. where I don't, right. I mean working in this field, you know, some do not have that wherewithal or they're like, fuck mm -hmm. it, I don't, there's no way I'm going to go to mm -hmm. your facility or anyone else's, you know, right. um, but the story that you shared, what would you tell somebody right now if they were listening, like, I'm experiencing a rock bottom or I feel unsure or hopeless, I'm looking on social media and, you know, there's a mm -hmm. shit ton of information about I don't know what to do, I'm on one mm -hmm. day and I want to use again, I mean, what would you mm -hmm. say? I would say, you know, there's so many options out there now, and we know so much more about substance use disorders than we knew back then that, you know, you can try a variety of things. I mean, you can try, yes, you can try the traditional rehabs or the intensive outpatient types of programs. But now we also know, you know, a lot more about the brain chemistry, genetics of the whole thing. You know, there's medication-assisted treatment. Um, even in terms of peer supports, it's kind of like if you're not interested in the 12 steps, you know, there's life ring, there's smart recovery, there's all of these other types of things to try. And I think that the important thing is to try the various things and to, you know, use some of the stuff that they would teach you in the stages of change model. It's like, really, what are you getting out of this? You know, and what's it cost? You know, um, and, you know, Seeing a therapist who really knows about substance use disorders, who's willing to teach you how to help you control your thinking or to help you control your emotions, um, because most people don't believe they can do that. And so by working with somebody who's trained in those areas, you can actually start to believe that, no, yes, you can. You know, and that's a lot of it, is that you can get to a hopeless place 
Absolutely. And think that you've tried everything and then you stop trying, you know, whereas the reality of these, this whole idea of it being hopeless is bullshit. And sometimes people just need to be told that it's bullshit. You know, it's that you haven't had the tools and you haven't known how to do it, but the idea that you can't do it is, is bullshit. I think that's important because <clears throat> for you, like a person who is like you, how you describe that time in your life where, you know, you're like, enough is enough. I'm psychotic. And I'm, you mentioned something about if, as long as you can keep this, I don't know if you meant facade or control up, mm -hmm. but until you couldn't anymore, that was your, your mm -hmm. point where you shifted. So mm -hmm. with that, with someone kind of like that going, I'm just going to keep going. What would you tell them? Mm -hmm. Keep going until you break or... Mm -hmm. What do you I think? I would tell them you can, that you can do that. <laughs> I'm you know, doing it. <laughs> it's kind of like, if you like suffering, have at it. that's what you can do. Yeah. It's, you know, because, you know, the downside on the map as well is that when you do crash, right. um, you feel like a piece of shit. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and that, you know, for me was obviously when I was psychotic was not when I made the decision to go and get help. It was in the aftermath of that when I would allow myself down after being up for multiple nights in a row and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but, you know, the thing is your brain is going to tell you one thing because your brain wants the drug, you know. And, you know, unfortunately for a lot of these drugs and alcohol, there's been brain damage and your brain does not function um, normally because it's been so impacted by the influence of chemicals that are hitting sure. your brain. Right. You know, so a lot of times you're not going to be the best drug. You know, and that's why listening to people that you're close to and all of that other stuff, you know, like interventions and things like that, where, you know, people are trying to tell you the truth um, and having a little bit of faith that maybe they're right and you're wrong. And nobody likes that. No one. <laughs> no one. <laughs> Not even me or you. <laughs> uh -huh, exactly. But, you know, sometimes it's true. And sometimes we have to listen. I mean, what the other option is, right? What the alternatives are. And speaking mm -hmm. of alternatives, uh, you know, I want to talk a little bit about your facility, your treatment facility, and mm -hmm. what inspired you to open this treat treatment facility mm -hmm. other than mm -hmm. the commute? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I had worked um, quite a... Uh, across quite a wide array of different programs and administrative roles and clinical roles. Right. I had a private practice and um, the name of the facility, by the way, is Olympia House. And, you know, there was a, an old farm that had been um, run by a nonprofit for a long time. Oops. Um, I just lost one of my earbuds, but I'm assuming that's okay. We can hear you. Um, okay. Um, and um, it was right near my house. And I'd always thought, God, it would be fun to run that place. And then luckily it went up for sale and a friend of mine ended up buying it. They were dairy farmers and, but they had no use for the treatment facility that um, had been serving the substance use disorder population for years. And so after having worked in community mental health for so many years where the budgets were incredibly tight, you're extremely limited in terms of what kind of treatment you could offer. Um, and in my opinion, you know, so much of it was just not enough. And I know community mental health is doing their best, um, but with the budgets that they had, it, it 
nearly impossible. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I swore that if we got the chance to create a facility there, that we were going to try to bring it um, as high a quality of treatment as we possibly could, and that we were going to incorporate as much of the um, current treatment modalities as you possibly could, so that yes, we would have you know, 12-step offerings, but that we were also going to offer all of the other peer support groups. Um, like I mentioned before, um, Smart Recovery, Life Ring. Um, and not only that, but we were going to incorporate all of the, the latest psychological treatments that we knew of so that CBT was going to be a mainstay. DBT was going to be a mainstay. We were still going to have... Yeah. By the way, what do those mean, CBT, DBTs? So CBT is Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. And that's teaching people a group of skills to challenge their own thinking, mm -hmm. okay? Um, because certainly that's one thing that with substance use disorders are affected in terms of how you think, the way you think. This teaches you how to challenge that thinking and to realize that there's other ways of thinking. Sure. Then you have DBT, which is dialectical behavior therapy. And that really is teaching you how to control your emotions. So many people with substance use disorders have long histories of trauma. In fact, you probably make the case that every person with substance use disorders have had some sort of trauma. Sure. And that affects their ability to regulate their emotional state. So those teach you the skills about how to view things differently. And, you know, the techniques you can use to not engage in self-destructive emotional behavior, all of that sort of stuff. Um, and so... Those are kind of evidence-based um, treatment modalities that are relatively common right now, mm -hmm. but that you don't find in a lot of treatment facilities because they don't have very large clinical staffs. So that was another thing is that this facility was going to have, you know, licensed and trained clinical staff, um, as well as people who had focused in on substance use disorders so that we'd be equipped to handle both straightforward substance use disorders as well as co-occurring disorders. Um, and that and, means and what again? My, I'm sorry, when what is co-occurring? means that there's another mental health disorder as well. Okay. And for me, substance use disorder is a mental health disorder. Um, and this division between mental health and substance use was created out of convenience um, <clears throat> historically, but certainly of late, um, you're much more likely to hear behavioral health disorders versus the, you know, the division between those two things. Um, okay. And then we're also, you know, focusing on trying to get people engaged in alternative stuff. So because it's on a farm, we had animals and we do equine therapy and we have yoga and we did all of those extra little things. Not that everybody is going to get into any of that sort of stuff, sure. but some will, you know, mm -hmm. and that was the whole idea is to be able to provide kind of a, a whatever it takes approach that there isn't one way to recovery mm -hmm. and that we're willing to be flexible with people in order to find the way that's necessary for them. At the same time, being realistic that, you know, many people with substance use disorders when they initially come in believe they have the answer. And so part of our job is to get them to realize it's like, well, maybe you do and maybe you don't. Right. So you described the, you know, the services and, and kind of how you arrived there because you drove past it and, you know, you thought it would be fun to open a treatment facility. Um, 
I'm curious about what your vision is. How would you describe your vision? You told us a little bit about what it, mm-hmm. the, the services, but how would you describe your vision and why you believe in it? Well, I think that the thing is there's so much research going on, so many new modalities going on, starting to understand substance use disorders so much better that my goal, you know, my vision for the facility is that it keep up with that and that it incorporate all of the stuff. It's that there's huge value in the traditions that um, have gotten us to this place. And I think that those things need to be respected and incorporated. But there also needs to be the appreciation that, you know what, when we come up, when people discover new things, that we're able to bring that in, you know. So like with a lot of the medication-assisted treatments, mm-hmm. is it the answer for everybody? No, but it is the answer for some people. And, you know, if new medications are coming out, that we make sure we're able to incorporate that, you know, into the way we approach it, non-judgmentally, because, you know, again, kind of historically, there's been judgments. You must do it this way. And if you don't do it this way, it won't work. And it's like, well, that's true for some people, but it's not true for everyone. And the bottom line is people are dying, you know, all across the board. And we need to be able to offer whatever is available to them because in any other, you know, disorder, that's what we'd be doing. You know, it's like, if you, you know, had some type of cancer or something, um, and your doctor wants you to have a CAT scan. You don't want somebody to say, oh, no, CAT scans are no good. You need to stick with an X-ray. Like, well, why would you stick with an X-ray when Very a CAT scan is so much better mm-hmm. or an MRI or whatever, you know? So it's like really bringing it into the mainstream and rather than criminalizing substance use disorders or, you know, saying that it's some kind of a, a moral issue on the person. It's like, that's, that's really not what we know, um, you know, and that, not everyone is going to become addicted to a drug simply because they've used it a few times, but some people are, you know, and we don't have all the answers about who is and who isn't. And I know with all the years I've been doing this work, I still can't tell you which ones are going to make it <clears throat> because there have been some um, incredible stories of people that, you know, if somebody had made me place a bet on them the first time I met them, there's no way I would have put a buck on it. But they, you know, they have made it, you know, 10, 20 years later. So, um, you know, it, it's still one of those things that we do the best we can. And a lot of the work does have to come from the person. But that's also true of every other behavior. Um, somebody who suffers from severe depression, but who won't do anything about it, well, that depression is not going to get better. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I wanted to share about your vision is, you know, you have one of the biggest hearts on the planet. Um, and, you know, this is a hard, this is hard work to do this because people die all the time. Like, I, I couldn't tell you right now on the street, that person's going to make it or that person's not. Um, but I think it's really important, the things that you shared is that to stay connected Right. I mean, people listening right now are like, well, I don't know if treatment's right for me. I don't know about the CBT, DBT shit or whatever. But I think the bottom line for me, what you're saying is there's so many ways to, you know, stay connected, get information, um, get help. Right. I mean, it's not the traditional things anymore. There are so many things that people can access, hopefully these days, some online, 
granted, mm-hmm. but facilities like yours trying to stay, you know, um, the finger on the pulse with mm-hmm. different treatment modalities and that kind of thing, I think is super important. Um, is there anything else that you would add about Olympia House Sonoma Recovery Services located in Petaluma, California? Mm-hmm. No, it's just, you know, for anybody who's listening and, and thinking about treatment, the important thing is no matter where you go, you know, the whole thing is you, you've gotten to the point where you realize it's a problem. And if one doesn't work, try something else because everybody's different and you never know which one is actually you. And you're ultimately an example of that. You kept trying, you didn't stop. Um, you tried this and you tried this and you reached out here and there. Um, so I didn't know this story as before, so I'm still taking that in and I do appreciate your openness to talk about mm-hmm. this, I don't know, to the world. <laughs> You know, um, but again, I want to thank you again for coming on this show. Um, I really appreciate your insights and kind of the evolution of treatment from your perspective and your experience as a licensed clinician, as a person who gives a shit about um, people who suffer from addiction and who are in recovery. Um, for all of you that are interested in um, getting more information, Wayne, correct me if I'm wrong. This is Olympia House, Sonoma Recovery Services. Uh, their website is sonomarecoveryservices.com. And their phone number, you can reach them at 888-795-1965. So if they wanted, they probably wouldn't get a hold of you, right? They got intake people right. over there um, mm-hmm. and program directors and clinical directors and all that kind of stuff who can help them. Um, but look at their website um, again, Wayne, thank you so much for being on the air. I thought I would freak out a little more, so I really appreciate your calm demeanor. <laughs> um, so thank you again, and thanks, everyone, for listening. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Recovery Plus Podcast. Fuck yesterday, focus on today. I'm your host, Dr. May Lee Hennon, celebrating and honoring people in recovery one conversation at a time. This podcast is sponsored by Red Door Coaching and Consulting. You can find my podcast on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon. Thanks again for listening. Talk soon.